Welcome to the PTAB podcast. We are a group of paediatric trainees in the Southwest who every month review a selection of articles that we find useful for our practice. These are taken from the BMJ, Archives of Disease in Childhood Journals. For the full articles, please go to their website, journals.bmj.com. Please note, these are our own opinions and are produced for educational purposes only. They are not intended to substitute professional medical advice, diagnosis or treatment. Thanks for listening. Hello, welcome to the PETA podcast. My name is Felicity Cooksey and I'm a paediatric trainee in the Seven Deanery. Today we'll be discussing child poverty and health inequalities. I'm very pleased to welcome Dr Helen Leverett. Helen is also a paediatric registrar in the Seven Deanery. She is interested in the health impacts of poverty and the role clinicians can play in addressing the social determinants of health when meeting families. She believes that healthcare professionals should be advocates for reducing health inequalities using our voices to influence policies that impact on the social determinants of health. Helen is a founding member of the WAM project, the Wellbeing and Health Action Movement, and is a founding member of the Migrant Solidarity Group. She has volunteered for Doctors of the World and is a University of Bristol lecturer. It's very impressive, Helen. (laughs) Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. (laughs) Could you tell us a little bit more about yourself and how you developed your specialist interest? Yeah, so I live in Bristol with my family, with my wife and two children and our four chickens. Um, As you said, I'm also a paediatric registrar in Seven, currently based in the community in Bath, as well as working for the University um, of Bristol teaching evidence-based medicine on the intercalated degree in child health research. So my interest really started in, in medical school. Since then, I've been interested in the role of healthcare professionals in addressing issues of social justice. I was involved in medicine, now known as Students for Global Health. I studied global health as an integrated degree. um, And then after foundation training, volunteered, as he said, at at Doctors of the World and MEDACT, where I became involved in um, setting up the Migrant um, Solidarity Group. And if if listeners haven't heard of MEDACT, I'd really encourage them to check them out. Um, And with those organisations, I've been involved in campaigning about migrant rights to accessing healthcare and the negative impacts of the government's hostile environment policies on the health and well-being of migrants. More recently, I've been involved in WAM, the Wellbeing and Health Action Movement, which is a movement to inform, empower and unite clinicians in addressing child poverty and health inequality. Thank you. And I've seen your chickens today and very grateful for the eggs. (laughs) You're welcome. (laughs) Um, The article we're discussing today is a review article published in Archives Disease in Childhood by Alice Arley and her colleagues, titled Child Poverty and Health Inequalities in the UK, a guide for paediatricians. The guide has two aims. Firstly, to educate paediatricians about poverty and how it affects child's health. And secondly, to let us know what we can do to help. Two of the authors were actually on the RCPCH podcast at the end of last year doing a talk on um, child health inequalities. So for any listeners who are interested in the topic, it's worth giving the RCPCH podcast a listen as well. In this review, they are covering five areas, thinking about what is child poverty? What's the association between poverty and health inequalities in children? What's the mechanism between this correlation? what can we do as healthcare professionals, and then tips for communicating about poverty. 
So that's what we're going to be exploring today. So they start off by discussing the definition of child poverty. How would you define child poverty? So there, there are various ways of defining poverty, but really in basic terms, uh, poverty is when your resources are well below your minimum needs. Generally, we're talking financial resources, but poverty can also include impaired access to services, for example. The definition most commonly used in the UK is that a household is living in poverty if the household has an income of less than 60% of the median household income. So this is known as relative income poverty. In 2020, the UK household median income was 30 grand a year. So families with income below £18,000 a year would be below the poverty line. And by this definition, 27% of the children in the UK are living in poverty. So that's more than one in four of all the patients you see on your ward, in your outpatient clinics, in your children's school. And obviously this varies by region. If you want to know the level of poverty in your area, you can go to nchildpoverty.org.uk um, website and look at that interactive map. So here in Bristol, it's about, it's between 30 and 32%, depending on which part of the city that you're, you're living in. There are other definitions of poverty. So material deprivation um, is where you can't afford certain essential items and activities and destitution where you really can't afford the basics such as shelter, heating, clothing, etc. I suppose these are kind of just like word definitions and when young people from RCPCH and us were asked what they thought what living in poverty meant they made it a lot more real by sharing things like poverty's not having the right school uniform is not being able to do activities like go swimming or football or go to the cinema or go on holiday it's it's not being able to eat healthily but also it's the stigma they said that poverty is being bullied and discriminated Wow, that's really powerful. And then hearing it from those children's voices. Mm. And it's also really interesting to hear just the numbers involved. And can you tell us a little bit more about the inverse care law? Yeah, so the inverse care law is the principle that the availability of good medical or social care tends to vary inversely with the needs of the population served. And we'll all kind of remember from medical school that that was um, Julian Tudor Hart in the 1970s. I quite like his later kind of paraphrasing of it where he says it's to the extent that healthcare becomes a commodity it becomes just distributed just like champagne that is um, rich people get lots of it and poor people don't get any of it so in relation to child health children in deprived areas may have less access to the medical care they need for example due to financial barriers to accessing secondary care the authors of the paper conducted a survey in Liverpool which identified that it costs families approximately £35 to attend a respiratory clinic appointment and that 8% of families reported missing appointments because of financial difficulties. I was recently speaking to a paediatrician in Sheffield about financial barriers to accessing care and she told me about a conversation she had had recently with a family she worked with where the young person had cystic fibrosis and the child needed to come in for some IV antibiotics for a week. And the mum said to the, the consultant, do, do I really need to come in? I'm still paying off the £200 debt from my last admission. And, and I don't know the ins and outs of the case, but that could be anything from transport costs to childcare costs for other children, missing work in a job where you don't get paid leave to care for a sick child. 
The inverse care law also kind of applies to public spending cuts. So high levels of public spending cuts are obviously associated with adverse effects for children and they affect poorer areas disproportionately. And then following these cuts, you see the effects of increased food poverty, worse perinatal outcomes such as um, low birth weight. Poverty is bad for your health. Yeah. What you were talking about made me think a little bit about conversations I've had with Dr Bridges on one of the earlier episodes of the podcast on integrated child health and about the cost to families, but also cost to the healthcare trust of actually bringing children into hospital Mm. for their appointments. And that actually, if we can do more care in the community and more child-centered care, actually that can make children's lives and for their families so much easier. Yeah, we need to start thinking about it as an issue and thinking about how we can best serve the needs of the families we look after or work with. Yeah. Oh, thank you for that. And what they also talk about in this review, so we've spoken a little bit about the correlation between poverty and child health inequalities, is about mortality in children. Mm. Is that something that you've looked into? Yeah, so um, we're talking about the inverse care law, and that's often a key issue in debates around the provision of healthcare and health inequality. Frank Dobson, when he was Secretary of State for Health, said, inequality in health is the worst inequality of all. There's no more serious inequality than knowing that you'll die sooner because you're badly off. And that applies to children. You're more likely to die in childhood if you live in poverty. The work of Karen Lloyd and colleagues in Bristol who set up the fantastic National Child Mortality Database, one of their key findings um, on the analysis of all child deaths in England from April 2019 to March 2020 was there is a clear association between the risk of child death and the level of deprivation. They found that over one in five child deaths might be avoided if children living in the most deprived areas had the same mortality risk as those living in the least deprived. And that equates to roughly 700 fewer children who would die in England each year. That's about two primary schools of children that wouldn't die if we had less inequality in in the UK. Such a shocking statistic, isn't it? Yeah. I think so many of us have sadly cared for young people in their family who have unfortunately died and the idea that so many of those deaths could have been preventable. Um, That's really hard. How else does poverty affect your health? There's the immediate and direct impacts of living in poverty, so things like the home environment, like crowded and inadequate cold and mouldy housing, leading to things like respiratory illnesses. Poverty is also linked to having access to healthy, nutritious food, with the obvious impact on um, health and well-being. It's linked to having safe places to play, which is related to your, your risk of injury. For example, pedestrians aged 10 to 14 living in deprived areas are 3.7 times more likely to be killed or seriously injured on the roads. A recent study which looked at a million births in the UK suggested socioeconomic inequalities account for a quarter of all stillbirths, a fifth of all preterm births and a third of cases of foetal growth restriction. And we know that a person's intrauterine health will have impacts on the rest of, of that person's life course. But as well as those sort of direct obvious impacts, we know that childhood's a key time for young people to start developing and embedding those health behaviours that stay with them as they transition into adulthood and determine later health outcomes. And these are affected by deprivation. So things like eating habits, smoking habits, drug use, 
they, which will have the inevitable impacts on, on health. I suppose the final thing is that poverty leads to wear and tear on the body, caused by the, the constant adaptation to this stress. The article talks about how living in poverty has chronic pathobiological effects, including inflammatory effects, metabolic effects, and, and endocrine dysfunction. So living in poverty overtaxes your body's self-regulatory abilities and locks you into an unhealthy state, which leaves children vulnerable to chronic health problems such as cardiovascular disease, diabetes and depression, which then persist into adulthood. Research from the University of Cornell in the States showed that growing up in poverty leads to persistent changes in the prefrontal cortex that continue throughout adulthood. And in their, their research, they found that even if you stop living in poverty and then come into affluence in your childhood, you continue to have worse mental health than your peers who didn't grow up living in poverty. Yeah, that makes sense. I've, I'm going to start a neurology job and I've gone back to my exam notes that I wrote. You are my exam revision Yay! buddy. Exam <laughs> revision buddies, yeah. So I've yeah. been looking back at my exam notes for neurology and like the embryology and that early yeah. development. Yeah. And just reminding myself of how much development takes place in that first, particularly the first three years of life. Yeah, it's critical time. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it just highlights how important the first 1,001 days are. So what, as healthcare professionals, can we do to try to help the situation? So I'd recommend some resources. Of course, I'd recommend the RCPCH Health Inequalities Toolkit that this article is based on. That toolkit includes six tools to help paediatricians think about how they can address poverty in their clinical practice by building their knowledge, developing skills and talking to families about poverty and its impact, um, ideas on developing QI projects that aim to reduce inequalities in clinical practice, as well as exploring how we can use our voices as um, paediatricians to advocate for change and influence the local services that serve the families that we work with. I'd also recommend um, the article Cost of Living Crisis, a UK crisis with global implications, a call to action for paediatricians which is an article written by Goody Singh, a founding member of, of WAM, and Amaran, one of her colleagues, which explores more ways paediatricians can approach these complex social problems like poverty by applying a social lens to their work, thinking outside of the confines of their clinical role to see their ethical responsibilities extending beyond that clinical patient relationship. The authors of this paper suggest this can be done by thinking of actions in two distinct spaces, both inside and outside of health systems. So inside health systems, they discuss ideas how, on how doctors can change how they conduct clinical encounters. Um, so having those conversations with family, how service user pathways are developed with health inequalities in mind, and the orientation of research and improvement to deliver more equitable outcomes. So thinking about that patient journey but they also highlight that attempting to address social problems from a from the clinic or a, a purely individualistic acute perspective treats the symptoms but not the underlying cause for more far-reaching and transformational outcomes for child health a, a more systemic connected and preventative approach is required so in the long term they argue clinicians have the duty and power to help shape clinical services to better deal with and um, mitigate the effects of social inequality at the local level of service, service provision, a social lens encourages the removal of barriers to care, um, 
greater respect for the autonomy of patients, um, having those conversations with families, like we said, and the development of collaborative ways of working for child health professionals. Which sort of leads on to um, the addressing inequality from outside health systems, where the article calls on paediatricians to be actively involved in promoting social justice and gives examples on, on how to do this. When we're thinking about how to talk about poverty with families and your top tips, is there anything else you'd recommend? I think my first top tip is to know that families don't mind you talking about it. Research shows that clinicians feel awkward asking questions, but families don't mind us asking. So make it a natural part of your history taking. If you go on the WAM website, there's um, ideas on how to have those conversations with video examples and, and other screening tools that you, you might want to use. In the same way that you, you don't feel awkward asking about smoking, it's clinically relevant and it affects the health and well-being of families. So does poverty. I think my next top tip would be to take some time to look at the resources, look at what's available. Think about how you want to have the conversation. Do you want to use a framing statement like, since the cost of living crisis, more parents are having difficulty paying the bills and worsening debt. Is this something that's worrying you? Or do you want to use something like a modified heads conversation, slipping in clinically relevant questions um, where, where it's appropriate as part of that, that social history? So for example, in a diabetic clinic, you might find yourself asking direct questions. For example, you may need to talk about poverty in relation to safely storing insulin. In the UK, around 900,000 people don't have a fridge, which is obviously really important mm. if you've, you've got to store insulin. On the, the WAM website, you can see links to a charity like Turn to Us, which has a directory of charitable grants, which you um, may be able to help a family uh, to get access to money for a fridge, which is an essential part of, of their healthcare. Personally, I often tend to do a combo of general questions and more specific framing questions. It depends on, on how the consultation goes. I'm in the community at the moment, so I talk about diets a lot. I ask about vitamins, and then I may segue into talking about Healthy Start, for example. Again, there's information about what Healthy Start is and, and how it can help families access uh, milk, veg, fruit from the Healthy Start scheme. It's, that's information on that on, on the WAM website. I recently looked at the data in the southwest. Around 50% of those eligible for Healthy Start weren't accessing it. So that's a lot of people who could be having money to support healthy lifestyles. That is a yeah. There's a lot of people who yeah. aren't accessing yeah. it, isn't it? I might ask a family more directly. Do you worry your housing's impacting on your family's health? And following that, I might write a to whom it may concern letter or signpost to the charity shelter. If families in need of that support to advocate for their, their housing issues to be addressed. Thank you. That's really helpful information. I've heard you advocate for a HEADS tool for poverty before mm. and I heard you mention it then. For people who've never heard of that tool, yeah. what actually is that? So the HEADS assessment originally was developed as a way of talking to um, young people about their social history and how that may influence their health and well-being. So the acronym stands for Home, Education and Employment, Eating, Activities, Drugs and Alcohol, Sex, Suicide and Mood and Safety and Abuse. But you can, within that, because it's a nice framework, I find it's a helpful way to slip in questions. So if yeah. I'm taking a more talking to a family approach and, and thinking about different elements of their yeah. social history rather than using a framing statement, depending on the consultation. In Home, I might say, um, so who lives at home? 
what's your housing like? Have you got any concerns about crowding or mould or cold or pests? So that would come under the H. In, in education and employment, you're thinking about how your child's doing in school, whether they're on a low income. I've become much more comfortable talking about universal credit and PIP and, and people are really comfortable having those conversations. If you don't feel awkward about it yeah. and you've done a bit of education to understand um, people's access to benefits, so thinking about whether they're getting their disability living allowance and having those conversations. Activities, so you could talk about whether they've been on, on holidays. Diet, so as I said, I often talk about diet in my clinics and see if they're accessing healthy food, whether they've got an access to a fridge, are they missing meals to feed their kids? Are they getting their healthy start? And then safeguarding and support. So and asking about whether people feel um, safe at home because we know financial pressures and things and lead to things being more challenging in, in the home environment. Thank you. The other thing I was thinking about related to what else we can do was social prescriptions, mm. which I've been hearing a lot about. Have you ever done a social prescription? Yeah, so um, social prescribing is when healthcare professionals refer patients to support in the community in order to improve their health and well-being. I'm currently in community in Bath, and um, Bath and North East Somerset, and at the moment I often refer to a fantastic organisation called Southside, which supports families and individuals across Baines, Bath and North East Somerset. They've got domestic violence support, but they also have family support, which promotes the general well-being of the whole family, providing practical and emotional support. They have play therapists, art therapists, mentors, but they also work closely with early health and social services. But I'd love to see social prescribing be more of what we do in paediatrics and, and the norm. So our GP colleagues have been doing this for years, and I think we need to learn from them. There is a, a growing number of um, paediatric social prescribers. Um, I spoke to one who worked in North Bristol, but so they could take prescriptions from anyone who lived in the postcode of the GP services they were funded by. It didn't have okay. to come from the GP, but the child had to be registered at that yeah. GP. I recently had a talk from Lisa Jarvis, who's the national lead for children and young people social prescribing. And it's, it's on my to-do list to get in touch and, and see what's what's available locally yeah. and, and how paediatricians can link in more with, with those social prescribers. Yeah, it would be really nice to know more about the resources in everyone's individual areas. And I'd really encourage us to try and do that yeah. homework. I just took a bit of time to go on the, the council website and, yeah. and see what's available because we make an assumption that families will also know. And for those wishing to support change at a policy level, do you have any top tips? I mean, I suppose remember why you're doing it, firstly. You're making the voice of your patients heard. Let that be your, your motivation and your inspiration. The um, quote from Professor Sir Michael Marmot really resonates with, with me when he said, why treat children only to send them back to the conditions that made them sick? D mm. Do you need any more motivation to advocate for policy change? We know that current government policy decisions are making children sicker. We know that cutting funding to Shoresart centres is linked to increased obesity. And it's so sad to learn that the government have just shelved the long-awaited health disparities white paper and in doing so have removed that spotlight of focus on the need to effectively address health inequalities. And I think as paediatricians we should be angry about that. Camilla Kingdom wrote about it in her most recent president's um, blog. I think secondly, feel confident in your expertise. You may not know about the ins and outs of the wheels of governments and how they turn, but you know about children's and families. 
and it's okay to know that you don't have all the answers, which kind of links in with the first to you know bring your knowledge um, and your motivation but be part of the conversation policy's got loads of different levels you can get involved within your department your hospital your local integrated care board or on a more national level i've been to um quite a few board meetings at various hospitals and i was really nervous beforehand but actually i realized it's just having conversations with people you don't need to be intimidated by titles you have a really valuable voice and that people want to and need to hear and I suppose if policy floats your boat there are loads of training opportunities in clinical leadership health policy public health through through UPs etc but I don't believe that we need paediatricians all to go off and become public health doctors who speak policy talk fluently the voice of the general paediatrician at the integrated care board is really important the article I referred to earlier with Goody Singh and Amaran also discusses lots of ways paediatricians can be involved for advocating for change. And I mentioned at the beginning um, MedAct, which mm. is uh, a members organisation with decade expertise on campaigning for solutions to social, political and economic conditions which, which damage health and deepen health inequalities. So uh, yeah, check them out too. Thank you. That sounds like really helpful resources. The other thing that I've been hearing about is RCPCH ambassadors. Could you tell us a little bit about them? Oh, thank you so much for asking. Yeah, so RCPCH Ambassadors uh, is a programme that was started in, in 2019 in response to the, the changing way that healthcare systems are funded and, and run, so the move to integrated care systems. RCPCH Ambassadors are paediatricians that are supported by the college. Their role is to be part of the integrated care boards to make sure that the needs of children and young people are considered and prioritised in the development of services so that that young peoples are on the agenda. Quite interesting that in my BSW, the integrated care system that I work within at the moment, children were not on the agenda. You look stunned, So, but genuinely they weren't their own sort of priority if that makes sense but now we have um, Steve Jones who's an RCPCH ambassador so someone who's representing the voice of young people so that is an, a fantastic opportunity to advocate for children and young people and how services should address their needs and address health inequalities. Yeah that does sound like a really fantastic idea thank you. So we finish up when we look at articles by thinking about whether or not they would change our practice. Now for yourself, you're already so passionate and have all of this knowledge about the topic, but more broadly for listeners, do you think this is an important article that should impact on people's practice? I'm, I'm just really pleased that as a profession we're starting to have more conversations about health inequalities and what our roles as paediatricians are in addressing these. This paper was co-authored by the president of the Royal College of Paediatricians Health inequalities are really important. This paper shows that our professional bodies is, is starting to take it seriously and there is a lot of work to do. Health inequalities are getting worse. And I think the role of the paediatrician is going to have to change and evolve if we want to meet the health and wellbeing needs of the families we serve. And I think this article outlines some ways that that needs to develop. Thank you. And the final way we finish our podcast is by asking a slightly more light-hearted question. Which is favourite book? I made it slightly more broad by saying this time it could be favourite book or film. And, okay. and why? And it doesn't need to be medically related. Hmm, that is that is so hard. Um, I think I'm going to go with favourite book. Yeah. 
and I'm gonna go with The Alchemist by Paolo Coelho, specifically the copy of the illustrated alchemist which has these beautiful illustrations that accompany the text. I, I think I first read it when I was about nine or ten and I think it sort of shaped the way I kind of see the world. Um, I love the adventure, I love the relationships the boy makes, it reminds me of my favourite poem Ithaca by Constantine P. Cavafy. It's not about the destination, it's about the journey um, and how somewhere along that journey the boy finds out that he's kind of he's exactly where he wants to be. Thank you so much for joining us today, Helen. And I hope everyone else is feeling as inspired as I am. Thanks, Felix. It's really nice to speak to you. That's all for this episode. As always, if you have any questions or comments, please feel free to get in touch via our email address podcast at pizzahub.co.uk or via the Pizza Hub website. Equally, if you'd like to get involved, we always welcome your voices, so please do get in touch. Thanks, Thanks for listening. listening.